Well, happy Easter, church. We can do better than that. One more time. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. There you go. There are people out there. I want to officially welcome you to our sunrise service. And uh, glad you guys chose to get up. The sun is just coming over the eastern peaks in Hawaii right now. And uh, so we're celebrating on Hawaii time for our, our sunrise service. Uh, I guess this is as close as we have to something like that for right now. So... Um, Listen, this morning, I'm just, I'm really excited about this morning and just um, what we get to celebrate and the, the, the meaning of it. And my prayer really is that this morning would be something that we'd be able to walk away and uh, really have experienced the risen Christ today. And um, in case you haven't noticed, there's a massive cross between me and most of you. And, um, and it's a little awkward and it feels a little bit different. And that's exactly the point. And, uh, and we're going to kind of dive into that today. Um, think about this for a moment and see if you agree with me. I think that in general, I'm not sure if this is true of all cultures, but I suspect on some level it is. But I know that as Americans, um, we love to be terrified, but we hate actual pain. Okay, just, just track with me for a moment on this. Let me, just, let me just throw some ideas out to you of why I think this is true. When, when a lot of people go to the movies... A part of what they go for is this tension that builds up, um, a fear that can build up. You're never in real danger at the theaters, are you? I mean, you might choke on popcorn. You might die from, you know, high cholesterol from the things you eat while sitting <laughs> and not exercising. But in reality, you're not in much danger. You're not in any more danger than you are sitting in a comfortable chair here. How about all extreme sports or adrenaline junkie type sports, right? A lot of those, now those you could say there's, there's, there's pain attached to it, but for the average person that goes, you know, snowboarding, water skiing, rollerblading, whatever, they like to be near the edge of terror and fear, but most people don't walk away with, you know, neck braces on and that sort of a thing. You could kind of go on and on with this. I mean, I think that, um, I'm not a big Texas Hold'em guy, but I think even in poker, some people sitting around, there's like this... There's this thing that, that wells up, like there's something really on the line, but there's no real pain involved with that, right? So I think, I think in general that's true, but, but what about when, when real pain is factored into the equation? Uh, this last week I was, I was playing with my kitty. Now we don't have a kitty, but we do have a two-year-old who often thinks she's a kitty. And um, we're on the bed, and we have a rule on our bed Lots of our family ends up on our bed often, but we have a rule that you're not supposed to stand on it. And while Becky and I abide by that rule most of the time, uh, the kids seem to struggle with this one, and especially our two-year-old. And so Cassie was, uh, was kind of playing around, and I was playing with her, and she was a kitty. And I was sitting on the edge of the bed, and I think I was putting my shoes on or something, but she came swinging around me like this. I'm on the corner of the bed, and she, for whatever reason, forgot about gravity and just kind of jumped. And had I not been right there and grabbed her and kind of swung her like this, Cassie would have fallen from standing about this high onto her little noggin. And um, it would have been really, really painful. Well, here's what my kitty did. She, she just squealed happily and like wanted to do it again. <laughs> I mean, oblivious, right? Totally oblivious to the fact that she was just averted huge pain. And here's what I thought about. I thought, you know... Um, I could have sat Cassie down right there and I could have said, now, Cassie, you say thank you to daddy. And she would have, you know, kind of been puzzled, like, why aren't we playing? Um, and I could have said, you need to be deeply, 
deeply moved by what I just did for you. And I think my daughter, I think, I think just out of love and trust, I think she pro- I could have gotten her to comply. And I think I could have gotten her to say, thank you very much, Daddy, if I just told her what to say. But she'd be totally confused by it. She'd have no idea why she just thanked me. Here's why I bring that up. I think a lot of people feel the same way about celebrating Easter. They're told they should be deeply grateful. They're told that they should have a, a solemn gratitude. For, for this great thing that's gone on. And I think many people show up at church or say thank you very much just to comply and just to keep the peace. Just like I may have been able to get my two-year-old to say thank you, they might say it with very little understanding of why, why am I saying thank you again? Why am I grateful? And here's the problem is that oftentimes um, we celebrate Easter without ever really understanding more of the context around it. Now, the Easter story is a great story, and I love stories. I think even if I wasn't a Christian and didn't understand the significance of it, I would love the Easter story because it's got just all the components of a great story. But more than telling a story this morning, I want to, I want to think about some things. I want to call some things to mind, and I want to, I, I want to paint a picture such that we can understand the danger that we're in, so that when we talk about the rescue that went on, it means something for us. And we're not that two-year-old saying, thank you very much, without any understanding of why we're thankful or what it is that should be welling us with deep gratitude, but we have a little bit of a taste of what's going on with that. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but God's popularity... It seems to go in and out of, of style, right? There are certain times, um, my wife and I, for instance, watched this week The Passion of the Christ. And that's not a movie we enjoy watching, per se. Um, but it's one that just, um, it's just this heaviness, and it's just this portrayal. And it, it gets me thinking. It's a little bit like going to a funeral or a memorial. I don't look forward to those and say, I can't wait to go to those. I'm not sure to go to weddings and baptisms. But you know what? I walk away from a memorial service and I'm thrilled that I went. Always. Because I walk home into my house and I hug my wife and I touch my kids and I, I think about them in a different way and I think about my life and it gets me to contemplate things I'm not necessarily comfortable contemplating very often. The Passion of the Christ, when that first came out, do you remember how there was just controversy and comments on all sides of the issue? Time. Newsweek, U.S. News. I mean, it was, Jesus was everywhere. On the Discovery Channel, all these shows were popping up about things. And then that kind of waned, right? And then along comes Da Vinci Code. And I mean, just on and on. And so it kind of is this ebb and flow about the popularity of, of Jesus. And I think about God, though, over his, the course of, you know, of, of our existence around God. In general, God's not super popular. Wouldn't you agree with me on that? I mean, in, in general, I mean, I think we, we sometimes think that, you know, there's aspects of him that he is, but in general, he's not. Now, you know, some of us feel like we're on God's PR team and, and um, we just think about, you know, how can we make God look good? And there's a, certainly an element of that as a Christian that we're to show off the glory of God. But I think many are worried about the popularity of God. And they kind of wring their hands with it and they say, man, there's, there's problems here. I think, I think others avoid certain aspects about God to avoid that discomfort and that awkwardness comes 
when there's certain portions of scripture that you're like, man, let's just avoid that part. Let's avoid what, what Jesus said there because that one's not super um, easy to swallow. I think some, though, are flat out ashamed of God and ashamed of the gospel. But here's what I want to throw out to you this morning, and really it's where we're going to focus. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 1. And we're not going to flip around a bunch. I'm going to put some verses on the screen that you're welcome to, to look at and follow along. But I want to camp out really on, on one verse. And while you're turning there, think about this, that in avoiding the controversial, distasteful parts of God and the gospel, what we end up doing is we end up robbing the gospel of its very power. Look at Romans 1, starting in verse 16. It just is quite simple, but it's a very powerful verse to think on and meditate on. Here it is. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This morning, I'll tell you what it is just up front. This morning is about celebrating and proclaiming that gospel and the whole gospel. Not to just focus on what I would perceive as the good part or the easy part to package and make look good. Well, that begs the question of this. What is the gospel? When we throw that out, it sounds like a churchy religious term. What does that mean? What are we talking about? I want to start with a color this morning. And I know that that word blood is not a color, but you get the idea. And if you read the Bible, and if you're a careful student, or even probably a casual student of God and His Word, you'd see that blood and sin have always gone hand in hand with God. You begin to talk about God, and eventually sin's going to come up. And if you begin to talk about the Bible, eventually blood is going to come up. And that's just the way it's always been. I mean, already you're starting to see why God's not super popular. Have you noticed blood isn't super popular, and, and blood red maybe isn't like the mainstream color? You know, you don't, you don't like to, to see that very often. But God seems to be quite fond of blood. I want you to just think with me for a moment. Um, how many of you know where Leviticus is found? Just raise your hand if you know where that's found. Okay, it's in the Bible, and it's in the Old Testament, right? Now, isn't Leviticus really an entire book kind of about blood? I mean, there's blood everywhere in that book, and it's when you're reading it to your kids, you kind of edit it a little bit because you're like, wow, that's nightmare time, you know? And it's a, it's a whole book talking about this whole subject. This book that we're in, Romans, talks about being justified by blood. Ephesians talks about being forgiven by blood. <clears throat> Ephesians also says that though we were far off, you and I, as those who've wandered from our Father, are brought near by blood. Jesus... As part of this Easter story, even started what we now call communion around a meal. And remember what he said the wine represents? He says, you need to drink my blood. Now that's shocking to us, and it was shocking to them. And it begs another question, why all the blood? What's the deal with blood? Hebrews 9.22 says it pretty simply. It says, without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness. Now, we're going to wrestle to, to unpack this a little bit. But in a nutshell, there you have it. My sin requires a payment. And the long and short of it is, I either pay for it with my blood, 
or someone else pays for it with their blood. No one gets off without someone bleeding. And I don't care who you are, in what part of the world, you have been born with an innate sense of justice that says, I want blood for someone who does this rotten thing to my family. Someone must pay. That's the imprint of justice that God has put on us, and we're said to be made in the very image of God. Blood's only part of the story. I want to move on to the cross. And in the cross, we have more reason for losing the popularity contest, right? I mean, you think about what a cross is, and one old hymn says it this way, it's the very emblem of suffering and shame. Now think for a moment how you've orchestrated your life and how you're orchestrating your family's life. Aren't you doing it to avoid such things as suffering and shame? I mean, I think people live whole lives to avoid those two topics. Man, if I could get off with as little shame as possible in my life and as little suffering as possible in my life, I mean, that would take up a large chunk of my energy to avoid those two things. And as one of the hymn writers says, this is the emblem of those two wrapped up into one. Not super popular, I suppose. The cross is lost on many of us today. It it, it carries with it kind of a warm, fuzzy thing. And people wear it around their neck. People put it on their earlobes. And you see it showing up, you know, in cross-stitched kinds of things, right? But it's not super far stretch for us to to think about the cross and as we, we even take two seconds to really contemplate it, to begin to think about what the electric chair and what a lynching rope and what a cross all have in common. And we don't like to think about that and so we, we usually shift gears away from those kinds of thoughts. And we think, well, let's let it be kind of a nice religious symbol and let's leave it nicely decorated and leave it on the wall so we don't really have to, to deal with it quite so much. I guess the real question that comes up when you start talking about a cross, and I can remember as a kid seeing a cross, and I was in my home church this week, and a lot of just childhood memories flooded back to me, and I remember asking this question and thinking this. Why is that cross, why is that image of our Savior on that cross such a good thing? I guess you could, you could ask it kind of a, a different way, and that is this, how does Jesus bleeding help me i know we celebrate that i know we talk about that we sing about it a ton in in the church but how does that help me to talk about this and to think about this we have to go back to the sacrificial system now i know especially with it being spring and all of that a lot of people probably most people think you know sacrificial system means hitting one deep to right you know right center maybe with someone on third base you know to kind of sacrifice fly them in And you talk about sacrifice and people go, yeah, I'm not really, really clear on what that means and what you're talking about. If we're not talking baseball, it sounds scary. sounds a little bit weird. Probably for for most of us as city dwellers, we tend to struggle with understanding certain things about how the world really is. And I would gladly and freely admit that. Um, I'm not positive it's always such a good thing to be a a city suburban dweller. And here's what I mean. When you and I go to the store and we want some chicken, this is, this is what our chicken looks like, right? For the most part. Now, let me just ask a really simple question. Does anyone see any blood? No. 
It's been really washed away, right? That's one clean chicken breast right there. That looks appetizing to me. I see that and I say, thank you very much. I would, I would choose to purchase that. Do you know that chickens have blood and guts and yucky looking things on the inside of their little feathers? Now, for most of the world, I don't have to explain this, right? They totally get that. They see that and they're well aware of that. They're also well aware that when they're eating this piece of meat, something died. They're eating something that, that died. And what's interesting is we have to teach our kids. You know, eventually they're going to ask that question. Sorry if I'm spoiling it today, but <laughs> when you say we're having chicken for dinner, is that the same as that picture in that book? All right, dear, let's take a walk. <laughs> you, need to, you need to walk it through, and um, they have only rice that night for dinner, right? Here's, here's what I want to get at, is that we're not super comfortable with, with blood, right? We see that, and I, it seems in general that we're quite fond of blood, but only if it stays on the inside, right? We love blood as long as it stays where I don't have to see it, deal with it, think about it, and all of that. I have a hunch that certain other cultures have an easier time grasping certain things than us simply because of that. I even saw some pictures this week um, at something that I was at, and all these pictures of Jesus are on a cross, and you know what? He looks just like that chicken breast from Foster Farms. He's totally clean. Sometimes, in one image, I caught this because I knew what I was talking about. I saw one trickle of blood coming down where they pierced his side. Just a trickle, though. Because that's part of the story. We better put a tiny bit of blood in there. But for the most part, look at it. He's, he's, he's portrayed as, as pretty clean. In fact, we're appalled by, we're disgusted by a realistic portrayal of what his back was striped with and like. It's disgusting to think about and talk about. And frankly, we just kind of don't want to go there. We like a clean Jesus. But a clean Jesus isn't what saves the words that we just sang, and I'm so glad we sang that, are actually scripture. This is from Isaiah chapter 53. And it's not just poetic words that we sang, but these were words that were written 700 years before the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This substitutionary death of Jesus on our behalf was revealed to us through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before it took place. The story begins so much more before Good Friday, doesn't it? It's been the story of God unfolding to us. And if we look even casually, we can find the clues for it. Thinking about a substitutionary death, you have to go kind of inside the world of an Old Testament priest and inside the world of a substitutionary system. In short, God instructs his people in how to live. He says, this is how I want you to live. It's no different than a father today saying, this is the rules with which we will govern our lives by. And when people went outside the boundaries, as we are all prone to do, same prophet says, all of us like sheep, we've wandered. We always go outside the line. Some of us do it passively. Some of us do it most aggressively. But all of us do it. And so God says, here's how I want you to live. This is where I'm giving you. 
And then when we go outside of it, he says there's a way to make payment for that. There's a way to restore the relationship. And the payment is made with blood. And so what is set up is this sacrificial system. And over and over with the blood of lambs and goats, there, there, is, this, there is this pushing forward, in essence, of the payment. So lamb after lamb gets slaughtered. And as you think about an Old Testament priest, far from like, I usually think of these guys as slow moving. You know, their hands are like this with like the covering here of their long robes. They're nice and clean. They always talk with dignified voices. They have tall hats. And as you start to read the Old Testament and you start to really think about God choosing a Levitical priest, I want to have you think about this. What you see on the screen probably isn't what we're talking about. I mean, these were guys who knew how to handle a knife. These were guys who spent their day literally ripping open the flesh of animals, pouring and sprinkling blood on things, burning things. As I got to think about it, I think this is a little bit more of an accurate picture of what, of what you could do. You have Bear Grylls from Man vs. Wild who just knows how to handle a knife and burn things. And you have Bobby Flay from the Iron Chef. You know, I mean, he's just in that kitchen. He's not a, he's not a pansy dude. These were guys who had blood on them. Stains. Rotting flesh. I mean, lots of gross stuff. Not meat chicken, right? These are the guys who are, who are neck deep in this kind of stuff. And I thought about being a priest because I'm a pastor. And I thought, what if God called me to be a priest and I lived a long time ago? I started to just chew on this a little bit and think about it. And I thought, you know, I can just see a priest being up there. And right as he finishes some, you know, some prescribed sacrifice and there's this poor, helpless lamb. There's maybe still that stench. I mean, if you work it in and out, you come home just smelling like grease and you don't want to think about burgers. These guys didn't want to smell blood anymore, right? It's just been a long day. They've been sacrificing. Some guy comes up, toting a bowl behind him and says, had an affair, I'm next. I mean, honestly, I think I'd want to turn the knife on that guy and just go, would, would you just have thought about that before you started messing around? And you just get a little bit sick of it. And I bet, it, I bet in the spirit of priests, maybe just for a convenience factor, they just at some point would shout, stop sinning. Quit doing this stuff. This is getting to be a real drag. And I think in saying that, they would echo the heart of God, but maybe from two totally different vantage points. Because this object lesson of death and dying and blood and sacrifice is not right in front of us every single day. I think what happens is that you and I miss out on the ugliness of sin. I think that I tend to miss out on the tragedy of death and the fact that someone or something is going to die because of my sin. We miss out on the payment that's required for sin. Think about how it would affect your decisions if you could see the carnage that goes on that's payment for your sin. What if we weren't under this new covenant? What if Jesus hadn't come yet? And you were to come into my office and say, Dave, I need to talk to you about something. And, and you confess something. And we knew what had to happen. So I went out back and we started slicing. I mean, just think about how that would 
affect your decision process and your thought process. Now, it's really challenging for me to watch something die. But even in the old days when you saw a lot of it, even if you're in a farming community, you see it. But I don't think you ever really get used to it or comfortable with it. It's not something you necessarily look forward to. It's something that you put up with because you have to, and it's a part of life. In a very real sense, our sin, my sin, past, present, and future, put Jesus on the cross. And that's the heaviness of Good Friday. That's what, we ought to, that's what we ought to contemplate as a part of this weekend. Not to rush to Sunday morning, but to contemplate Friday and what we talk about with Good Friday. But isn't that where the goodness of Friday comes in? The blood's on my hands. The sentence for this is death. And that's why we begin to celebrate and understand what a substitutionary death and the word atonement, paying for it, is all about. Another question is begged here, and that is, that what did, what did the sacrifice of Jesus accomplish? And here it is. The Bible tells us. Ephesians 1, verse 7 says this, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood, there it is again, of His Son, and forgave us our sins. So here it is. We're free. One of the things that the sacrifice of Jesus accomplished is that you and I are free. We're free from the bondage of sin. We're free, we're free from being controlled by just our impulses. We're freeing, free from being controlled by the opinions of others. Remember how some set up their life to avoid shame at all costs? It's a lot of work to find my value and my identity in how you people think about me. I mean, that's a full-time job. But when your identity is in Christ, a part of what your freedom is, is you're free to have your identity and value from Him. We're, fear, we're, we're free from the fear of punishment. We're free to enjoy relationship in a way that we couldn't before. We are free to hope. We are free to serve and love without any manipulation or desire for reward. Think about that. When we're in Christ, because we've been purchased by His blood, we're free to serve in a different kind of way. And as Jesus said it, we're free to live life fully alive. Not only are we free, we're also forgiven. No longer is this ever-growing list of wrongs keeping me from God. No longer do I have to shun thinking about God because right away I think about how I've wronged God. And that's what keeps me running. That's what keeps me away. That's what keeps me cowering but rather because of the blood of Christ. Not only did He purchase our freedom, He forgave us our sins. Great line of an old hymn in that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see, for twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon a sinner, or to pardon and sanctify me. There's a second verse that has some things that we can look at in Romans 5, 8. says, but God demonstrates His own love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Two things I want you to catch here. One is just that we're given proof of His love. You ever question if you're loved by God? Contemplate the cross. You ever question if you're noticed by God? Contemplate the cross. 
Go back and ask yourself this. Would I give my one and only son for something I didn't value? For something I didn't notice? Would I, would I make that huge payment and not see it through by walking with this child through all of his life? So when you're doubting, when you're wondering if you're really loved, ask those questions and look to the cross. Not only is it given proof of our love, but also we are justified before God. And the word justified is different than the word forgiven. We already talked about being forgiven. Justified, I mean, just the easiest way to think about this is think about a courtroom. You could be in a courtroom, and if someone's forgiven in a courtroom, what it implies is that you were judged and found to be guilty, but now we're not going to count it against you. You're forgiven. You know what justified in a courtroom means? You were judged, and you were found to be innocent. So the judge makes his proclamation, not guilty. That's the powerful thought about being justified. Not just forgiven, but we are actually seen as innocent and made right with God. Because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus. That's why Friday can be called good. And that's why Sundays are incredible. Just think about the fact that Christ knowingly gave his blood so you and I can can keep ours. And more than just physically in this life, he says that our life that we receive from him now goes on and on and on and on for eternity. That's why we look at Good Friday. Kind of in wrapping things up, I just want to throw this out, and, and that is that Maybe for some of you, you've thought about this a lot. I would pray this wouldn't be old hat to us ever. That the wonder of the cross, the wonder of the resurrection and the empty tomb would never go away. I think if we're not careful, we're not guarded with this, wonder easily turns into wander. And we just, we just kind of wander away from it. And it stops to lose, it stops losing it's impact on us because we've heard things over and over. That's where my prayer for us today who know this story, know these simple truths that I'm pointing out, would, would afresh grab onto them. Let them define us. Putting the cross back even in the center of our worship and in the center of our relationships such that we have to look around it and think about it. What if this was bolted to the ground here? And every wedding we ever did had this massive cross before us and the people witnessing it. Would we ever lose sight of the cross? We did a memorial in here yesterday. What if a cross was just bolted right here to the floor? Wouldn't be as socially acceptable. No one would put it there for aesthetic purposes. But maybe we're onto something by having it sitting right here awkwardly right in the middle of the sanctuary, where it even blocks the view of you and me. For some in this room, maybe this is the very first time that you've really chewed on this. And you're coming face to face with this. And in asking the question, what am I to do with this? Let me, let me just point to Romans 2 to answer that. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn from your sin? 
You want to talk about another unpopular word that loses popularity contest for God? The word repent. Now, people screaming at people on a street corner and shoving their finger in their face, screaming repent or die, that probably has some, you know, tinge on why that word isn't super popular. But the word repent quite simply just means to turn, to turn from sin. Turn from chasing a life that's dominated by you and your kingdom and turn to God. That's what the word repent means. And that's the call that Jesus came to offer to everyone is that we're called to repent, to turn. Aside from repenting, believing in your heart that Jesus is God's son, confessing with your mouth that God raised from the dead, the Bible makes a really simple promise. You will be saved. You will be rescued. You will be counted justified and forgiven and free. And it's simple enough that all the children in this room can understand it. But it requires an act of faith. I want to invite the band up right now. And I opened with the idea of shame and what it looks like to be ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed of this this way of salvation that God chose. God wrote the script for We didn't write the script for it. I want to paint a picture of what someone who's unashamed looks like. This was written by an African pastor, and it's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. And I want you just to listen. He writes this, I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die have been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I, am no longer, I, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be first, right, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or even rewarded. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, live by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. The way is rough. My companions few. My guide, reliable. My mission, clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or slow up until I've preached up, prayed up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach until all know, and work till he stops. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes right now.
just in this quiet moment before we rush off to family gatherings and lots of fun food and time together. I want you to ponder as you listen to a song that's going to be played. And when the line in this song comes up that says, Precious blood has washed away the stain. I pray that we would catch it in a different light today. Not let it roll off our tongues as some cute religious slogan. The call, the beckoning of this song is come to Jesus and live. That's my prayer for each person in this room today. God, thanks for your word. Thank you for your example. And God, thank you that this morning we celebrate an empty tomb. A risen and fully alive and fully realized King of kings and Lord of lords. And God, we take great comfort in that while having our feet on this earth still. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, God offered something huge. And it's the least that we can do to offer something back to him. Um, So as we take up the offering now, I, I challenge you to think about what you're giving. You're not just giving money. You're not just giving funds. You're giving yourself. You're offering also your time. You're offering your life to someone who offered his life for you freely and gladly. So pray with me as we take the offering. God, it continues to boggle my mind that you would so freely offer everything. It says that while we were still sinners, you died for us. It wasn't because we, we loved you so tremendously that you just had to come up with some way But while we were off doing our own thing, not caring for an instant about you, you came up with a way to make us free, forgiven, loved, and justified. And God, for that, we cannot thank you enough. God, take these funds now, take these monetary offerings and use them as you will. God, multiply them as we know you can. And God, also just for ourselves, help us to continue to offer every single day, all of us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you for worshiping with us today, and, um, and what a great line of the song, the, the price of grace 
And you know, as the disciples watched the story unfold firsthand, and for the first time, not being able to have the opportunity to know where the story ends, this whole picture of the cross begins to take on new meaning for them. And it turns from being an emblem of suffering, an emblem of shame, to being this trophy of grace. And that's why 2,000 years later, we can look at a cross, and I believe as a disciple, you really can have a warm fuzzy looking at an instrument of death. Because you think on what God feels about you and what He did for you to demonstrate His love and pave the way for you to be in His family. And that's what it's all about. Neighborhood Bible Church is a collection of people from a lot of different walks of life, from a lot of different age groups, from a lot of different ethnic backgrounds. And we find equal footing at the foot of the cross. If you do not have a church home because you're not a Christian, I invite you to start attending here. Enter the conversation. If you've wandered from church and are looking to find your way back home, come to NBC. For those of you who call this church home, let's take and live the message of the cross, not not as a Good Friday ending story, but as a Resurrection Sunday morning ending story and share that hope and love. Would you just stand with us right now? We're going to close with, with one final song. And it's this refrain of just singing out of how great our God is.